Last week we talked about, in Romans chapter 1, 1 through 5, about how the peace of God gives us hope in the midst of hardship. How we handle suffering. And we learned how justification by faith creates peace with God, ultimately. And we learned that we have a new standing with God. The love of the, we have a love for the glory of God. And we can see suffering through the lens of God's sovereign plan for our lives. But this, that section, verses 1 through 5, ended with the statement about hope and God's love. It said this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our heart. It wasn't trickled. It wasn't dipped in. It was poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Romans 5 verse 5 indicates that there is something very foundational about God's love. So he expands on this theme of love of God in order to ground what he has said about the peace of God with God in the midst of hardship. In other words, Jesus loves me. This I know. So from Romans 5, 6 through 11, I want us to look at three real realities regarding the love of God. And how they relate to our lives. So three realities about the love of God and how those three realities now impact our lives. Here's the first one. It is a love that rescues sinners. And I'm not talking about those other people. I'm, I'm talking about you. The essence of the beauty of, of the love of God is the way that God has treated those who do not deserve his love. This is something that we've, we have talked about time and time again. We do not deserve God's love. Some of us probably have thought that we were entitled to God's love, that he pours it out on, I, hey, I've done these things. I'm entitled to this love. But Paul contrasts God and human beings, and we've seen that in the first four chapters. This is God, the holiness of God. These are humans. The sinfulness, the depravity. Remember those six weeks of just trudging through the depravity of humanity? And now we are going to see the way that God comes to rescue helpless human beings. God, Paul begins explaining uh, God's love by giving us a description of the conditions of humanity as being weak and ungodly. These are overlapping kind of terms. They kind of lay on, on top of each other. But together, they give us a great picture to show how bad humanity, hum, human beings like you and me, really are. The point in this verse is to show God's love to people who are in need of spiritual rescue. In need of spiritual rescue. And the central part of this text, power, is the fact that God's God loves people. God loves people before they stop their rebellion. God loved you before you stopped rebelling against him. God rescues sinners. He, he rescues sinners while they are still in their sin. 
This word weak is a word that can refer to physical weakness. It can refer to sickness. But in this context, it is figurative, figuratively used to describe a lack of moral strength. It, it's used to describe an inner poverty or, at best, a spiritual incapacity. <laughs> so because of this, the NASB uh, translates it as helpless, and the NIV translated translated as powerless. The point is simply that human beings are spiritually incapable of being in a right relationship with God on their own. Absolutely helpless. Absolutely powerless. You are hopeless. There is no way that you can ever have a right relationship with God on your own. We are dead, dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. We are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. We are zombies, right? We're, we're dead. The dead who somehow are walking about in this world. We have a will, we have affections, we have desires, but they are naturally and continually set on the wrong thing. And this is not for those who are unsaved, right? This is also true for us here in this room. Often we find ourselves uh, in, our, in our flesh struggling with things, right? That we still are finding ourselves, finding our affections and our desires set on the wrong thing. In order to really understand and appreciate the love of God, you have got to see that God's love was set upon us through Jesus, through the death of Jesus Christ, before there was even an inkling of any kind of love or desire for God himself. Which is crazy. He, he loved us first. It kind of goes against all dating and marriage principles, doesn't it? Men, the woman that you find yourself attracted to, it wasn't because she was mean and nasty. It wasn't because she was throwing stuff at you. It wasn't because she was publicly, you know, uh, saying, this guy's an idiot. He's a, he is a jerk. No, there was something warm and loving in her. There was an inkling of love, so you set your love upon her. But God does the absolute opposite, doesn't he? While we were yet in open defiance and rebellion, hating God, where there was no love whatsoever, God set his love on us. So what does God do? He, he loves us first. He, he loved us before we even turned to him, before we acknowledged his rule in our lives, and before we even repented of our sins. The gospel is a search and rescue mission. That's what it is. God is searching out lost and broken people for the purpose of rescuing them, giving them life. The gospel is not an achievement recognition program. It has nothing to do with what you have done. God sought you out before you ever sought him out. And if that is not a reason to lift your voices in praise, give me an amen, do it in a pause, I don't know what else there is. Amen. This is good news. The other term that Paul used here is ungodly. Human beings 
were loved while they were still weak. And Christ died for the ungodly. What does this mean, the ungodly? The New Testament uses the word to describe life that is oriented away from God. A life that shows contempt for God in belief and in action. Ungodliness is more than just the sins that human beings commit. Ungodliness is a state of mind. And that is why the Bible often makes a distinction between ungodliness and unrighteousness or sinful actions. Let me just show you a couple examples. The verse is from Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. But you also see it in 1 Timothy verse 1.9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murders, and on and on and on. So to be ungodly and weak means that the orientation of your entire heart is set against God. It's set against God. We do not desire his rule, his reign. We, we, we buck at anything that feels constraining, that anything that is obligatory. Human beings actively resist submitting to who God is. And we see this in our lives yet, right? There's part of us who, who you tell me to do what? You, the Bible says this, and you want me to do that? Come on! No, there's a part of us that still has that piece of saying, no, I know it's in there, but please don't, don't tell me to submit to that. You have no idea what the situation in my life is really about. Or I really know better than what scripture has to say. So we find ourselves naturally resisting. We, we naturally dislike his glory and we love our own. It means that we should be, we are powerless to do anything about it. Paul's description here should make us tremble. Our ungodliness, our sinfulness, our incapacity combine to create a very dire picture of our spiritual state. Dire. Hopeless. However, we need to look at verses 6 through 8 to see the beauty of what is here. This, is, this text is about God's mercy in pursuing sinners who are in their sin. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's, it, it's about God's love pursuing you before you even thought about pursuing him. Notice how often the word while is used there, right? Notice that. And if you're a circler, an underliner, or note taker, note, note this. While we were still weak, verse 6. While we were still sinners, verse 8. And while we were enemies, verse 10. God's love comes to sinners in distress. While you were still in this state of mind, God came to you. This is the essence of God's grace. Love that comes to the undeserved and to the absolutely resistant. This is the beauty of the gospel. Amen. It comes to you 
in your dire state, your deep, deep need. And what's more, this love came at the right time, which means that God had it perfectly timed in accordance with his sovereign plan. In other words, some of you need to be reminded, God is not done. He's not done with your son. He's not with, done with your daughter. He's not done with your neighbor. He's not done with your wife. He's not done with the people in your life who are far from God in God's sovereign timing. Who knows when that's going to be? Your responsibility in this time is to continue. Present the gospel. Present the gospel. Present the gospel. Because you don't know when God's going to show up. Amen. He keeps on coming. God is relentless. He pursues you in amazing ways. And the amazing thing is in his sovereignty, the circumstances around the moment that you heard the gospel are not an accident. You, you, you being a believer in Christ Jesus, you being a Christian, was not an accident. There was no accident. God is so relentless in his love for sinners that there is nothing that is left to accident or left to chance. Nothing. Which you may kind of do one of these kind of things for your mind, right? I'm here today as a believer in Jesus Christ because of God's choice. How should that propel your worship? How should that propel your evangelism? How should that propel the love that you have for others? It's undeserved. Undeserved. So just think about the significant significance of these two phrases, that Christ died for the ungodly, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus became our representative and our substitute, right? He took our place. He died for the sins of those who were not yet surrendered. He made atonement for those who were not yet repentant. To me, that just looks like a very bad investment, doesn't it? It's, it's a bad crapshoot. Why would I ever invest my life, give it in its entirety, to those who are unrepentant, who are sinners, who are set against me? That is just a very bad, bad decision, God. But Jesus died for those sinners who were his enemies. And this is very unusual. That is very unusual. And verse 7 highlights this. The meaning of this verse is simply that it would make sense for to die for someone who deserved it because of their morality, right? It makes sense to die for a good person who is kind to you. But to die for the ungodly while they are still sinning is absolutely scandalous. To die for people who not only do not appreciate for what you're doing, but who resist your sacrifice seems like a total waste of time, a waste of blood, a waste of life. And this is the trauma and the transformation that, that comes from God-loving sinners. It changes everything. It's an abrupt change. It means that if you are here today, you can come to Jesus today. It, he loved you. He has died for you as, as you are right now. 
You don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. You give up and come to Jesus. You don't clean up to come to Jesus. You, you give up and come to Jesus. And once you have tasted this sweet, undeserved grace, it changes how you see yourself. It humbles you. And it creates a heart of worship in your soul. It makes it unthinkable and despicable to glory in yourself, knowing that God has rescued you as a sinner from your, un your own sin. And it also makes you run back again, time and time and time again, makes you run back to God's grace when you show your imperfections, when you fail, and when you do not measure up. You keep running back to his grace. It gives you assurance and comfort because it was God who saved you, not you who was going to fail again. God saved you, and it was God who will keep you to the very end. But it also, friends, hear this, it also makes you treat other people differently. Amen. Knowing that God loves sinners should make Christians love sinners too. Amen. Think about that. Think about that. That the person that is most difficult for you, that, that family member, that co-worker, that checker at the grocery store that you now avoid because that one time... <coughs> Whoever it is, knowing that God loves sinners should make you love them too. It means that we are moved by the grace of God. We are moved to reach out to people before they have cleaned up one little bit. If Christ came to us before there was an inkling of love, how much should we reach out to people before they show one inkling of love or respect? Yes, there's safe boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But at the same time, we use that as an excuse to not do any kind of reaching out at all. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. He pursued us. It means that gospel-centered, gospel-formed people are tilted towards action, not inaction. Through our money, our time, and what we do, our lives are biased towards rescuing sinners. All too often, we don't see it that way, do we? We don't see our, our time, our talents, and resources as something that we should be saying, how do I use this to reach person A, B, or C? No, those are means of securing my own safety and security. Instead, God says, no, those are kingdom tools for the purpose of furthering my kingdom, not your security. That's a change of mentality. Grace orients you not to just stop being dismissive or from being receptive. Grace propels you, friends, to act. So that's the first one. 
The second one is, there's this look at how love brings reconciliation. Think about this one. This is this, this starts getting a little bit more tough and gets a little bit more personal. You know, because the love of God is this thing out here. I just kind of kind of glory in it. And Paul kind of touched on this. Well, now it means I've got to reach out to sinners who don't show one inkling of love, and I, I I need to use my kingdom resources. But now there's this. It's not just this lovey mushy kind of North American view of love. Now it moves on towards. It's a love that brings reconciliation. And then the second aspect of God's love is featured in this way is that. This love creates a new relationship between God and us. Paul uses verses 9 and 10 to emphasize what he has previously said in 6 and 8. He he sets the beauty of God's grace in a more personal uh, context through the word reconciliation. This, This is more of a personal section. As the argument moves from statements about a believer standing to a much more intimate kind of idea. God rescued people to bring them to himself. In verse 9, you can hear the term, since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. There's your little signal kind of word. Since, Paul is setting up things so that we can get, so that we can start moving and seeing the implications of justification. Previously, Paul Paul had talked about justification through redemption, through faith, and now through his blood. So to say that we are justified through blood is to connect the sacrifice of Christ to the Old Testament sacrificial model, right? Where, Where sinners are brought near to God through the presence of the death of another. Reconciliation is only possible through death. So we find the first use of this word, saved, here in verse 9. First time in all five chapters, the word saved is found in verse 9. And this word serves as a bridge between the problem of our sinfulness and the beauty of reconciliation. It's a bridge. People who are justified by faith are saved from something and they are saved to something. Do I need to say that again? People who are justified by faith are saved from something. But they are saved to something. We are saved from God's wrath. We, we touched on that kind of last week as we talked about peace with God as a result of kind of this appeasement and atonement of God's wrath, but let me reemphasize to you that we are not just saved from our sins. We are saved from the wrath of God against our sins, which is good news. One commentator stated this truth really well. He said this, the ultimate threat confronting sinners is neither sin itself, not the power of Satan, and not even death. The ultimate threat confronting sinners is the wrath of God. That's God's greatest hatred. It's the sin in our lives. And that's where we're under the condemnation. It's because of sin in our lives. 
There is nothing more dangerous than the sovereign and impotent, impotent, omnipotent, the omnipotent and holy justice poured out on deserving rebels. Nothing more scary than that. And there's part of me as I was thinking about this, as you think about the new heavens and the new earth, when, when we're, we're in glory, will it include joyful trembling? A joyful trembling of really seeing the glory of God on full display, right? We are going to be in his presence, on, and he's going to be, we're going to see him as he is, for real, in technicolor, in all of his glory. And then in that moment, we are going to be having this realization of the ugliness of our sin. In, in light of who he is, oh my heavens, the ugliness of my sin, and realizing how dangerous sin is as you are standing before a holy God who knows absolutely everything about you. Everything. And I wonder if in our gratitude we might find ourselves saying, wow, wow, that could have been really scary. I'm in awe. And there's a little bit of twinge of fear as I look at a holy God. But man, praise be to God that he saved me because this would have been really bad for all of eternity. Paul is highlighting that the death of Jesus did more than just cleanse us from our sins, friends. The death of Jesus removed, knocked down, took out the obstacle for God's love, and it opened wide the path of reconciliation, of making things right. It opened up the floodgates of God's love being able to be poured out on you. Jesus removed what we were powerless to address. You couldn't do anything about it. So that God could make us what we could have never been without him. We could never be that way. We could never be this way. So the love of God reaches a crescendo in verse 10, right? You kind of see this? For while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I love the much more kind of stuff. He reaches a crescendo with, with the connection between being God's enemies and now being reconciled through the death of Jesus. Previously, Paul used words like we were weak and ungodly, but now we see the full picture, right? Sinful human beings would be under the wrath of God because of their sin. They are God's outright enemies. Romans 8-7 reiterates the same idea. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. God set his love on us and demonstrated that love through the death of his son while we were still yet sinners. And God saved and reconciled his enemies to himself. Crazy. But what does this word reconciliation really mean? It's kind of one of those Christianese terms that we kind of throw around, right? <laughs> to be reconciled means to be restored in your, your relationship. To be restored 
It means that we are now friends with God. That he has established a new relationship where at one time it was broken. He created a new way for us to be restored. And how do we do that? By putting our faith in his son. And the tone of this text would indicate that this is something that is a present reality through Jesus. We are reconciled now. Enmity with God has given way to embrace. Can you imagine that? You were Osama bin Laden hating God with all your being. You, you, everything that you did was against and revolting against God. But God, in his love for your Osama bin Laden heart, God, in his love, broke through, knocked down the walls, created a way. And what has he done? That is what God does. Enmity has given way to embrace. Hatred, wrath has given way to embrace. The, the effect of this, friends, is, is sweeping. It's huge. It means that the Father, that God is more like a father than a judge. That we are fellow heirs with Christ. That we are indwelled with his presence by his spirit. That we are invited to pray to him with confidence now. And he really does hear us when we pray. The love of God through justification and reconciliation has changed our past sins in our present experience. He loves us. He knows us. He has forgiven us. He welcomes us. And it is all because of what he has done for us. God befriended his enemies. Isn't this crazy? God, God did this for you. He did this for me. He did that for that person that you know that you go, there's no way, no way they will, they will ever come to Christ. Do you know their life? What has God done? He moved heaven and earth and created a way. Praise God. There is nothing more beautiful than this. Here's the, the powerful thing, right? Is that this also relates to our future. It's not just the here and now. Verse 10 basically says that if this is what God has has if he has done all this, if there is justification, been saved from wrath, the death of his son, and reconciliation of his enemies, then surely we will be saved in the end. He, not only will he accomplish this here and now, he will keep you to the very end. We find assurance of our salvation here. And it's the warm-up of what is to come in Romans 8, 28 to 39. Paul is looking toward the future. And he is telling believers that they can have confidence in their future. 
You can have confidence in the future because of the extent, the richness, the lavishness of God's love. You can be sure. So our hope in the for the future does not rest on our ability to stay the course. Thanks be to God. Because on God, but on God's ability to love us. Eternal security or the assurance of salvation doesn't come from my or your ability, which falters in a moment's notice. It rests on God's ability. Suffering can cause you to question, right? If what you believe is real or or if you will keep on believing, it can cause you to question that. And I think it's it, it is a normal question to have when you're deeply hurting. Is this real or can I keep on believing? And this is the kind of, kind of text that is enormously comforting because it points us back to the reality of what God has accomplished and has kept for us. So when life hits the fan and you wonder if you can keep on believing or keep on going. We look back to this and we say, yes, you know what? My hope is anchored in God's love, in the reality of my reconciliation. I am anchored in this, and I cannot be pulled from it. It grounds our confidence, not in our subjective feelings, which change moment by moment, right? But in what God has accomplished for us through Christ Jesus. So when you doubt God's love, read Romans 5. When, when you fear for your future, you need to rehearse what the beauty of God did by sending his son for his enemies. Rehearse it. If you wonder, how can any good come out of this you need to look at the cross. You need to look at the cross and see how much good came out of that horribly gracious day. You need to hear the words of Paul in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. We need to learn to live on the love expressed to us in reconciliation. And then we need to apply that love and grace in this world. So reconciliation is not just a me and Jesus, me and the Father kind of thing. Reconciliation does what? It moves out. It moves out. On a personal level, reconciliation with Christ means that Christ died for me in my worst possible condition. So when I fail, he will not give up on his plan to restore me, nor will he give up on his plan to restore them. God's not giving up on them. Why should I? If he has done this for me, and it is eternally secure for me, should I not be a reconciler? Should
Should I not be doing the work of reconciling relationships that are lost and broken? It, it means that in all these things, Jesus will keep me. Jesus will keep him. Jesus will guard me. Jesus will guard her. Jesus will preserve me. He will preserve them all the way to the end, end of my life, into the end of their life. God loves us and he will continue to love us because he has reconciled us. But this is not just about us, right? People who have been reconciled love to see reconciliation. They also know how, to, how it works. Whether it is two people or a family or, or families, gospel-loving people know they have been treated, how they've been treated by God. And so they or they should be motivated to treat others with the same kind of extravagant, rich, abundant grace. This is why in our world, where racial reconciliation is a hot topic, the church has the only solution. We should be in the midst of racial reconciliation. And if we are not, and if your heart is not breaking when we see these things, whether you believe there's police brutality or whatever, or that the system is all screwed up. Whatever it is, it needs reconciliation. And the church has the only answer. Because of what we have experienced through God. God has demonstrated his love by reconciling his enemies, and thank God that he has done it. But that brings us to the, the, the third piece. It is a kind of love that creates Exaltation. The final aspect that we see is there's this more than at more than that in verse 11. We saw this phrase last week in verse 3, where it was introduced introduced the idea of rejoicing in our suffering after talking about rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. <coughs> Romans 5:11 is the conclusion to what Paul said in verse 1. After talking about the wonderful truths related to justification peace with God, enduring and suffering, God's love, there is now reconciliation. And Paul reminds us of what all this is about. If we understand what Paul is talking about here, we are left to just marvel in the beauty of God. Notice that the text ends with a reference to reconciliation. We will talk about this, this whole rejoicing in a moment, but for now, just notice that reconciliation leads to rejoicing. Being reconciled with God leads to rejoicing. And I, I would even dare say that it leads to loud singing. I would say that reconciliation leads to rejoicing in the gospel in such a way that you are presenting the gospel. Actually presenting the gospel. Reconciliation leads to rejoicing. The work of God leads to worship of God. Salvation is not mainly about the salvation of sinners, but rather it is about the adoration of God. We are reveling in God. The redemption and reconciliation of sinners is the platform on which God is magnified. So much of our world shows us that this world is marred and broken, right? 
marred and broken. We saw that in chapters 1 and 2. And the tragedy of Romans 1 and 2 was the way that human beings rejected not just God's law or his existence, but even more, it was the rejection of God as God himself. So, so what does God do? He, he purposes helpless, powerless, and rebellious people by killing, killing his own son for their sons so that they could exalt in God, so they could rejoice in God. He, he loves sinners so that sinners will love him. He, re, he justifies sinners so that sinners will be happy in him. But to exalt in God means more than just being happy. It certainly includes this. But it means that Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. So to, to exalt in God means that you are banking on everything. Banking on everything, including your eternal destiny, that the fact that Jesus does love you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. So therefore, what do I do? I exalt in God. I, I rejoice in what he has done. I cannot help but being overjoyed. I cannot help but talking about him. Do you know what God did in my life this past week? Do you know what he did when I was 28? How he saved me, how he has rescued me, how he is preserving me, how he is changing me moment by moment. There is something in our lives that we are constantly exalting God, lifting him up, pointing to him in all that we do. You know what? In my suffering that I've been experiencing, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, you still find yourself exalting in God, rejoicing in God. So we're left, left asking this question. What can Christ do for me? Some of you would say, I am such a sinner. That what good is even religion for me? I'm powerless. And Paul says, you want to know what he can do for you? Much in every way. Remember when Christ died. When we were still powerless, ungodly sinners... It was not when we made ourselves better. It was not when we somehow climbed out of that, that fearful pit, that miry clay all by ourselves and washed all the mud off of us and made new hearts for ourselves that he loved us. No, that was not it. No, I've, I've fallen again. I've sinned again. I've done such bad things. When that has happened, think. Surely I shouldn't have done that. Such times like that, I need help. And my help at such times comes from remembering the basis on which my salvation rests. How does Christianity help? Much. In every way. Remember that when you were the only sinners, without, without one good thing to commend to God, it was then. It was in that moment that Jesus was loving you, that he was loving you so much that he gave his life for you. Who dies for an awful scoundrel, right? Christ does. Who dies for an enemy who cries out, away with him, crucify him, release us, Barabbas. Who does? Christ does. Who was the enemy? I was. 
I was the enemy of Christ. I was trampling through God's universe. I was the one poisoning his streams of love and mercy. I was the one turning his prairies that were vibrantly green into dust bowls. I was the one shaking my fist at his face. I could do nothing with him. I wanted nothing to do with him. And I was always finding excuses for not worshiping him. But what was God always doing? He was loving me even then. It was at that time that Paul said, this is the right time. The right time for your deliverance. When you were wrong in your attitude towards God and also wrong in your attitude towards your neighbors. Then at the most suitable and proper time for you, the time of your helplessness, of your sinfulness, when at your extremity God sent his son into this world, to the virgin's womb, and to the carpenter's shop, and to the cross of God's cruel shame. He came seeking you. Dying for you. Rising for you. Reconciling God to you. Saving you. What hope that gives you Amen. Even now when you fall, the blood of Christ is enough. He doesn't save me because I was strong. He saved me because you, he was helpless. You were helpless. And you still are. That's why the gospel is for you today. He didn't save you when you were a pretty thing. He saved you when you were nothing but vomit and mud. And on the basis of this reality, we can have comfort at the right time, even eternal consolation. So when we sin, we can act in one of three ways. We can say, we, we can become hardened to our sin and just become more callous and, and angry and more solid against God. We can sink into utter despair and cry and say, it's all over. There are people who have spent 20 years despairing over one fall. One fall, but neither one of those reactions are right. The only course of action for us is to become increasingly sensitive to our sins, but ten times more sensitive to the vastness of God's mercy. And then increasingly know the forgiveness that is ours on the basis of the blood of Christ. So if he has loved me and he has loved you like that, before he has even saved you or me, how much more has he clothed us in the righteousness of his son and how will that keep us even safer? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, friends, Christ died. Amen. 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 Well, God, as we are men and women who are in different places in our lives, Lord, this message is for us. It is something that we need to hear again this morning of our dire need to cling to you, the one who holds us to the very end. You have reconciled us, God. 
that is a beautiful picture. But Lord, it's not a picture just to gaze on, it is one to live into. So Father, help us. Help us to be the kind of people who, because of the love of God, because of the love of God, we are the type that rescues sinners by sharing the gospel. That we bring reconciliation to those who need reconciliation. And Lord, help us to be the kind of people who exalt in the love of God. As we pray in Jesus' name.